0: It's early in the morning of March 24, 1945, and a blood-red sun begins to peek its head above the tree line. Soldiers and tanks from the American 9th Army begin crossing the Rhine River into Germany, but a heavy morning mist floating above its surface leaves them wondering what waits on the other side. Hundreds of soldiers try to stay composed, to stay focused, as they quickly move across the long, thin pontoon bridge hanging over the misty river, their eyes peering into the fog for any sign of the enemy. But so far, nothing. On the other side of the river, Nazi soldiers wait. They're also anxious, but silent, machine guns ready. The river's heavy fog keeps them out of sight and blind, but they can hear, just like they've been hearing for days. The grinding of gears, tanks on the move, and the echo of troops preparing for battle. The mist begins to clear. Each minute passes painfully slow, but with it comes a little more clarity, a little better view of the river. When they can finally begin to see the other side, confusion, there are no tanks or soldiers. Welcome to Strange Archives. A journey through time to uncover the strangest events that shaped history and changed our world. I'm your host, Charlie Garcia. In The Art of War, legendary General Sun Tzu writes, All warfare is based on deception. When able to attack, we must seem unable. When we're near, we must make them believe we're far. When we're far, we must make them believe we're near. As far back as the Trojan horse, Deception and deceit have won and lost wars. In this episode, we look at the inspiring and strange tale of America's Ghost Army. They weren't there to fight the Nazis. They were there to fool them. The military kept the Ghost Army's existence secret for more than 50 years. And now, we're telling their story. It's January, 1944. Fourteen months before the crossing of the Rhine River, and America has just entered another year of the Second World War, promising more spilt blood and heartache. Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower sits in the corner of his dim office while a gray, still Washington, D.C. sleeps outside, an ocean away from the war raging in Europe. He exhales deeply, his breath turning to fog on the frosty glass of the window. He turns to his desk, eyeing the memo that arrived last night. In it is a strange proposal. A request to create a phantom army unit that would deceive, disorient, and if successful, help defeat the Nazis. This unit wouldn't fight. In fact, most of their weapons would be fake. They would rely on artists, not ammunition. Set designers, not detonators. And before the Nazis would even realize they'd been tricked, the elusive group would be gone. He sits still, deep in thought, and he knows the bloodiest days are just ahead. For months, Eisenhower and his commanders have been planning the invasion of Europe, D-Day. This coastal invasion of occupied France could cost thousands of lives and plunge the war into chaos. With the weight of the free world resting on his shoulders, Eisenhower knows that this isn't the time to think small. Innovation, creativity, and boldness. He'll need all of them in the coming months. And that's why, on second thought, the memo that just arrived at his desk might not be so crazy after all. This secretive group, a field deception unit, would focus on confusing German forces about the locations and strategies of US troops. The unit would be composed of three teams overseeing the major modes of deception, visual, sonic and radio the visual team wouldn't be built of soldiers in fact it would hardly be armed instead it would be made of artists designers and architects who would stage scenes to suggest the presence of real soldiers inflatable tanks phony trucks fake weaponry even fake airplanes built for opening night at a theater the goal would be to appear as a large combat unit to any prying German eyes in the surrounding woods or skies above. But rubber tanks and fake airplanes don't make any noise. And that's where the sonic team would come in. They would be responsible for creating the commotion that would accompany an army of several thousand men. Trucks mounted with loudspeakers would blast loudly enough to be heard miles away. They would use pre-recorded sound effects to imply that battle-ready Americans are ready to strike. Roaring engines, equipment pummeling grassy fields, echoes of phantom generals shouting orders at their non-existent troops. And finally, the radio team would be in charge of deception over the airwaves. The German army had become skilled at intercepting transmissions from the air, so the radio team would impersonate other U.S. units across the airwaves, fooling any eavesdropping Nazis listening in. Together, Eisenhower thinks the three teams could fool even the most battle-hardened Nazis, and they'll need every advantage they can get. But every choice he makes is a life or death decision, and the source of this wild proposal worries him. Ralph Ingersoll. Ingersoll had established a reputation among those who knew him best, as a womanizer, an egotist, a man who plays fast and loose with facts. This is the man who dreamed up the Ghost Army. Eisenhower stands up. He floats to the middle of his office and begins to pace, hands planted firmly in his pockets. The clock is still ticking, bringing D-Day closer with every move. Innovation, creativity, and boldness. The words race through his head again. Once his men land in Normandy, they'll need all odds in their favor and it's his job to make sure that happens. He picks up the phone and orders the fast-track creation of the 23rd Special Troops Unit, America's Ghost Army. It's a summer day on the French coast, and the heat is intense. Whatever relief the sea breeze provides is dwarfed by the soldiers' thick uniforms and rising anxieties. The smell of smoke and gunpowder hang in the air. But Bill Blass is enjoying the calm before the storm. He's tucked away in the back of an army green cargo truck, parked on the field where the Ghost Army is staging its first elaborate battle scene. It's a few hours before he'll be needed, but for now, his mind is anywhere but here. He's killing time in the only way he knows how, sketching a drawing that couldn't be further from the reality outside. A woman's evening gown. He hears gunfire bursting in the distance, but all he's thinking about is the red dress coming to life on the sketch pad in his lap. Blass is not your typical soldier, but no one is in the Ghost Army. Blass has been assigned to the visual deception team. His artistic abilities and an eye for color have made him the perfect candidate. At 15, Blass had been sewing and selling dresses in small town Indiana. Now, he's a set designer on the world's most dangerous stage. He'd been handpicked for the Ghost Army by recruiters looking for the most talented and creative minds in the country. And the stakes may be higher now, but his commitment to artistic perfection remains the same. He glances up from his sketch pad with a sigh, absorbing the scene around him. A group of soldiers unravel a bundle of rubber as an air compressor roars. And in just a few minutes, a full-sized tank springs to life. Just one of 50 scattered across the field. Four men, each grabbing a corner, lift it into the air as if the tank were weightless, adjusting its placement on the fake battlefield. Even though he's seen this dozens of times in training, Blast still finds himself grinning. Several yards away, the only real tank is driving around, digging tracks into the soft earth, seeing as an inflatable rubber tank can't make its own. If they're going to fool the German reconnaissance planes, every muddy detail has to be choreographed. Blast jumps as trucks mounted with speakers begin blasting the racket of a powerful American army on the move. Tank engines and shifting gears, trees crackling under imaginary weight, it all blares out of 500-watt speakers, bringing the scene to life. The invasion of Normandy, D-Day, had been successful, and they had broken through the German defenses. But retaking the coastline cities is an essential, painful next step. If they want to keep pushing towards Germany, they'll need thousands of tons of supplies delivered each day. And the only way to make that happen is to capture the seaports currently occupied by the Nazis. And the city of Brest is the most important of all. First, they need to seriously inflate the apparent size of U.S. forces planning to attack Brest. Then, they need to draw German troops away from the city center, making it easier for the real army to capture it. But for an army with no weapons, this is a dangerous game. Two explosions kick up dirt and pulverize a nearby blow-up tank. Blast jolts and tumbles out of the truck smearing the waistline of the otherwise beautiful red dress on the notepad. Corporal John Jarvie, his friend and fellow Ghost Army member, jumps into the front seat of the truck and turns the ignition, yelling to Blass. Blass, get up. There's been a mistake. We need to leave now. What? What are you talking about? They're coming. They're on their way now. The Germans are on their way? No, not the Germans. Us, Americans. Tanks from D Company are heading our way. What? Why would they come here? We set up this whole thing so they wouldn't have to be here. I don't know. There must have been a mix-up. But this field is about to light up, and we need to go. Now. Blast jumps back in the truck as Jarvey slams the gas pedal. They shoot away from the stage scene, down a bumpy path. He looks out the back as the blow-up tanks get smaller on the horizon and hears an unsettling, yet all too familiar noise the thunder of tanks on the move, but not from the Ghost Army sound trucks. His heart sinks. In the distance, he sees U.S. tanks lunging over the green hills, headed their way. The Ghost Army had done everything to lure the Germans there, but now it's U.S. troops falling into the trap instead. As the truck speeds off, Blast can see smoke over the hill. The Ghost Army was so convincing, that members of the 709th Tank Battalion came to join, expecting to meet friendly troops. But by the time they realized what was going on, the Germans had already zeroed in their guns. The staged battlefield had become real, and the mix-up cost the lives of American soldiers. The Ghost Army's debut performance had ended in tragedy, and Eisenhower is left wondering if the Ghost Army was a mistake. Blass and Jarvie raise two pints into the air with a clink, the suds from their beers splattering down on the cobblestone sidewalk outside the pub. Months have passed since the Battle of Brest, and the two men have grown close over their shared love of beer and art, two ways of escaping the reality around them. To the French locals, they're just another pair of drunk, obnoxious soldiers. And that's exactly the point. These aren't just two servicemen on leave. They're under orders, spreading disinformation loudly wherever they go. Today, they aren't the Ghost Army. They're the American 75th, and they have the uniforms and patches to prove it to anyone around. Their hope is that the right people are watching. Since D-Day, American forces have been recapturing the French countryside, and this town was under German occupation until only a few weeks ago. But that doesn't mean Nazis aren't around. In fact, Blass and Jarvie are counting on that. Though no one is speaking German or wearing swastikas, everyone knows that German spies are still around these towns. They slip in and out of cafes, eavesdrop on street corners, and keep an ear on American soldiers who may have had a few too many drinks. Beers in hand, Blass and Jarvie take a seat at a small table nestled against the pub's front window. Earlier that day, Blast had hand-sewn fake patches from the American 75th onto the shoulder of his uniform. Usually they just painted the patches on using stencils, but today they could be close enough for spies to see the stitching. Everything has to be perfect. Jarvie grins and starts the performance. Are you ready for tomorrow, for Paris? It's about time we get out of these mud pits. We can have a little luxury, and you know, the girls. The Parisians won't like you. They like class, more like me. Yeah, well I'll make you a bet. By this time tomorrow, I'll have a new French girlfriend. Jarvi laughs loudly and slams his glass mug onto the tabletop. Curious onlookers glare. Among them, hopefully, is at least one spy who's now convinced the 75th is headed east at sunrise. But missions like this won't win a war, Jarvie thinks. And this all feels kind of stupid, wandering around with a fake uniform. Still, there are worse jobs than running around French towns getting drunk. And if this can disorient German generals even a little bit, they could put the Nazis a step behind and save American lives, which is why they're here in the first place. After the catastrophe at Brest, The Ghost Army needs to do everything it can to prove its worth. But they're getting better. They've had many small victories since then. As Allied forces have fought eastward across France, Jarvi, Blass, and the Ghost Army have improved their deceptions. More reliable communication has been ironed out. The Sonic team has gotten better at creating and mixing authentic sounds. Still, the failure at Brest and the lives lost weigh heavily on them and also raised concern from army leaders. But the stakes are mounting as Americans creep closer to Germany. The battles are getting fiercer and more mistakes means more lives lost. The two quiet down a little. Blast brings out his sketch pad and starts drawing the bones of a crumbling stone church across the street. It had stood tall and beautiful only a few weeks ago, but today it's just a shell like the rest of Europe. Jarvey leans in, closer to Blass. No dresses today? No, no dresses today. Blass suddenly realizes that troops from the 75th wouldn't be sketching churches at a pub. So he shoves away the artwork and falls back into character. They go on about their fictional futures in the City of Lights, the women they'll never meet, the food they'll never eat, the lives they'll never live. Sure, they're putting on a show, but they're enjoying the performance. The scene surrounding Eisenhower is different from any battlefield he's ever been on. Scattered throughout the thawing fields are hundreds, maybe thousands, of carefully placed decoys, lightweight rubber tanks, staged artillery, even inflatable aircrafts parked on a fake landing strip. If Eisenhower didn't know it wasn't real he'd believe an attack was imminent. And from the skies, German reconnaissance planes are thinking the same. Today is March 23, 1945, and tomorrow is the day that American troops are set to cross the Rhine River and for the first time, fight the Germans on their own land. If they're successful, U.S. forces could seize the industrial heartland of Germany, and after that, nothing stands in the way of Berlin. But stepping foot onto that far riverbank won't be easy. The Nazis will give everything to defend their country, down to the last man. And Eisenhower is expecting fierce resistance and many casualties. He's walking side by side with another towering figure, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And he's specifically requested to see the Ghost Army in action. They walk along the massive fake battlefield to witness the display and inspire the unit's men, who are frantically running around, finishing up the scene. Eisenhower appears cool and collected, projecting confidence to the soldiers. But inside, his mind races, and his stomach churns, knowing how much is on the line. It was he who greenlit the Ghost Army and gave it high priority. But his hopes were dimmed after the failure at Brest, and tomorrow morning, the stakes will be even higher. — Churchill pulls a cigar from his mouth as an orb of smoke leaks through his lips and disappears in the breeze. He pauses to fully appreciate his surroundings. A few yards away, a focused blast and Jarvie are covering a truck with long camouflage nets, covering it well, but not so well that it can't be seen by planes overhead. Blast spots Churchill and Eisenhower, freezing like a deer in the headlights. He might as well be seeing ghosts. He blinks, starstruck, then shoots upright at attention and nudges Jarvis, who follows. Churchill chuckles at their reaction. He sticks his cigar back between his lips and carries on with a little smirk, Eisenhower at his side. As they walk on, Blast sighs and slouches, unable to fully comprehend what he just saw. What the hell are they doing here? I don't know but they wouldn't be here if it wasn't important. Chills creep up Jarvie's spine, knowing his friend is right. In the early hours of the morning, combat troops from the American 9th Army will lead an attack at a spot across the Rhine about 10 miles north. The Ghost Army's deception is an attempt to draw German defenders to the vast fields of blow-up tanks and away from the 9th Army. A realistic performance by the Ghost Army is the only hope to avoid a bloodbath tomorrow. To do this, their 1,000 artists will need to convince the Germans that they're actually an army of 30,000. Suddenly, nearby sound trucks fire up, simulating another wave of tanks on the move. Jarvi gazes eastward, into Germany, hoping the noise is startling Nazis at this very moment. Some of the sounds are especially eerie today. Thuds and hammering, to suggest pontoon bridges being built across the river. The sun begins its final fall beneath the tree line to the west, blanketing the ghost army and their fake battleground in a fading purple glow. In a matter of hours, they'll know if all their work was worth it, if their days of planning paid off, if their strategy saved American lives or cost even more of them. early in the morning of March 24, 1945, and a blood-red sun begins to peek its head above the tree line. Soldiers and tanks from the American 9th Army begin crossing the river, but a heavy morning mist floating above its surface leaves them wondering, what waits on the other side? Hundreds of soldiers try to stay composed, to stay focused, as they quickly move across the long, thin pontoon ridge, hanging over the misty river their eyes peering into the fog for any sign of the enemy. But so far, nothing. Time slows as the sound of flowing water and their own heartbeats fill their ears. On the other side of the river, Nazi soldiers wait. They're also anxious, but silent, as they sit a few hundred yards back from the riverbank, machine guns ready. The river's heavy fog keeps them out of sight and blind, but they can hear just like they've been hearing for days. The grinding of gears, tanks on the move, and the echo of troops preparing for battle. American soldiers can finally see the edges of land begin to take shape. It's still hazy, and the only figures they can make out are the silhouettes of trees standing offshore. From the German perspective, the mist begins to clear. Each minute passes painfully slow, but with it comes a little more clarity a little better view of the river. When they can finally begin to see the other side, confusion. There are no tanks or soldiers. 10 miles north of those Nazi forces, the American 9th pours onto the German bank of the river. But they don't find hidden enemies ready to attack, just scattered pockets of surprised German troops, completely unprepared. Operation Viersen the Ghost Army's most elaborate performance of World War II has been a success. After the success of Operation Viersen, the American Ninth Army was able to take a foothold in Germany, and they were followed by more Allied forces, suffering very few casualties. Two months later, on May 9, 1945, Germany surrenders. Hitler, days earlier had died by suicide. After the war, captured German maps revealed that Nazi units were anticipating a large US strike 10 miles south of the river crossing, the exact location of the Ghost Army. Their suspicions were confirmed. The Phantom unit had tricked the enemy and helped open the door to Germany. In the end, the Ghost Army lost three of their own on the battlefield out of roughly 1,100 members. It was officially disbanded in September 1945, but unlike combat troops returning home from Europe, soldiers in the Ghost Army weren't publicly celebrated. They were told never to speak of the unit's existence, not to their friends, not their family, not even their wives. The Ghost Army members were sworn to secrecy, but that doesn't mean they weren't recognized in other ways. Bill Blass went on to become a fashion industry powerhouse and won dozens of awards throughout his career. And John Jarvie, who'd studied art before serving, returned home with several binders filled with beautiful, heart-wrenching depictions of war-torn Europe. He went on to become the in-house art director for iconic fashion publisher, Women's Wear Daily. It wasn't until 1996 that the US military officially declassified the Ghost Army's story and men like Blass and Jarvie were fully recognized for their service and artistic brilliance. It's estimated that the Ghost Army saved tens of thousands of lives and helped push the Allies to victory. Without the Ghost Army, the ending of the war could have looked very, very different. In the end, that's why they did what they did, to prevent as much heartache as possible during America's darkest day. As one member put it, if one mother or one new bride was spared the agony of putting a gold star in their window. That's what the Ghost Army was all about. Thank you for listening to this episode of Strange Archives. To hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. Each episode is based on a true story and we strive to be historically accurate in every story that we tell. Our scene dramatizations are based on research, but in most cases, the exact words and situations are lost to time. You can find out more about America's Ghost Army at ghostarmylegacyproject.org. Strange Archives is produced by Progress Pop, a nonprofit news organization providing our audience with reporting on a wide range of national issues. Progress Pop meets their audience where they are, with news covering the wide range of who they are. Understanding that what makes us diverse isn't just our communities, but the interest of every individual. We focus on stories that make life pop. You can follow Progress Pop on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode was produced, edited, and sound designed by me, Charlie Garcia. It was written by Robbie Couch, Edited by Jill Janiero and Nielli Paleo. Research by Lauren Borders and Ricky Velez. Music by Julian Blackmore. Additional support from Elizabeth Frank, David Elman, and Noor Al Sabai.